We don't know that they're only doing intelligence. That's an assumption that's based on forensics looks of some of what was going on. The possibility that two things. One is that in the solar winds attack, there were other malicious payloads and beachheads left behind. The second thing is, I really doubt they were only looking at solar winds. Welcome to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast, where we share short and to the point perspectives on the cyber landscape. It's all about engaging yet casual conversations on what organizations are doing to reimagine their cyber programs while ensuring their business objectives are top priority. With my co-host, Stan Wisseman, Head of Security Strategists. I'm Rob Borrego, Chief Security Strategist, and this is Reimagining Cyber. So Stan, who do we have joining us for this episode? Rob, we're fortunate to have John Pescatore as our guest. John is the current director of emerging technology at SANS. Prior to SANS, John was the lead security analyst at Gartner for 14 years. John also has worked at GTE, NSA, and the U.S. Secret Service. But John, we go back to when I worked for you at Trusted Information Systems in the mid-90s. It's good to have you with us. Good to be here, Stan. Yeah, the time back at TIS in the middle middle 90s when the firewall market was first starting up and I left and went to Entrust when the PKI and encryption market was first setting up. I think that that was a time when the use of the internet by businesses was way moving faster than we could keep up with in security. And to some extent, we're paying the price today. There's a lot of things that to is point so back true. to those days. So true. So John, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was this SolarWinds sunburst attack. Um, I know the investigation of it is still ongoing and we're still learning new information every day um, as they as they find out how extensive this attack was. But it's now believed at least 250 organizations may have been subjected to more advanced hacking as part of the campaign. And some of these targets are some of the world class cybersecurity teams in the industry. I mean, FireEye, Microsoft, Lockheed Martin, you know, Intel. And on the government side, you know, U.S. Commerce, Homeland Security, State and Energy, and some of the Pentagon, you know, these are some of the hardest targets to hit in America. What's, what's your view of the attack and, and some of the ramifications going forward? Well, I think, Stan, the long-term ramifications all revolve around uh, supply chain security, which is a very big issue. I think we'll have a chance to talk about the sort of shorter-term things points out this enormous blind spot many companies have, even the ones we might like to think are the best protected. You know, past couple of years at SANS, I've run what we call the annual SANS New Attacks and Threats Report, where our top instructors, who are all consultants in security, um, highlight what new and emerging attacks they've been seeing this year that, that are breaking defenses. And back in 2019, you know, 2020 seems like it was a decade, but I guess that was only a year. Back in 2019, um, one of our lead instructors, Johannes Ulrich, who runs the Internet Storm Center we do, um, he pointed out system management vulnerabilities. He was actually pointing at hardware, base, baseboard management controllers and things built into PCs and servers that bad guys were exploiting. But the key there was these are highly privileged pieces of hardware and software that we have at the heart of our system. So one thing I think this points out is, you know, traditional risk dogma, we all know, find the company's crown jewels that the attackers will go after, 
then work to protect those crown jewels. Concentrate your resources on the crown jewels. I, I think there's another part we have to look at. I'm going to use an anecdote from my time at the Secret Service. You know, um, I, when I worked at the Secret Service, we also did advanced trips, bomb security and advanced trips for protectees. And they sent us to bomb schools to, to learn how bad guys would blow things up, whether they were terrorists or actually the one I remember was how uh, demolition companies bring down buildings. They find the key support points in a building, put a very small number of pretty small explosives at those key points, uh, set them off in the right sequence and the whole building comes falling down. It's just, it's just amazing. And, and you can look at that the same way as the stack for an IT system and say, oh, there's that weak link right at the bottom down there. Well, it, if you look at the tip, the two things I say we need to multiply is one, what are we using in our systems that have broad access? that can see and touch everything. And, and certainly Windows, we focus on operating systems, Linux and Windows. We focused on Active Directory, but these system management systems, these software development collaboration platforms that have access into every executable and repository, including the GitHubs of the world we use external, those are ones that have been underlooked. And SolarWinds is an example. Second thing is, if you're using the product that's the highest market share, you know, SolarWinds was in use by 75% of the Fortune 1000 and a higher percentage of government agencies. So it's a very lucrative target because one exploit gets them that leverage across all these organizations. And the fact that that product is in a very leverageable exploitation point, the whole building comes falling down. So I think a lot of risk analysis is, is done to meet compliance needs because the government process says this or the, the PCI process says that. And that there's been this lack of focus on this. What are those key pressure points that could bring the whole thing down? John, you know, th those are all key aspects of what we need to, to look at going forward. And I know we're going to get more detailed on that. But one of the things as we look at this particular attack um, is is the topic of attribution, right? And that's always a tricky topic to, to deal with. But CISA came out pretty quickly on this one and said, hey, the third actor in this particular situation looks to be Russia, right? And, and the purpose perceived at this point in time is around intelligence gathering, which, okay, got it, makes sense. But what's to stop them from merely being able to take advantage of what they've learned, how they have their tentacles into these different organizations at this point in time to be more destructive, right? And, and launch different types of attacks back in that that will be that much more damaging. So Rob, I think the first thing to point out is actually attribution has gotten a lot more accurate over the years. It's not, you know, some fat kid on a bed in, in Kansas can pretend to be Russians. There's lots of digital footprints and fingerprints that are left. Uh, I told my daughter this years ago when I caught her doing something online, I said, I would have gotten away with that when I was a kid because there are no digital footprints, but <laughs> now I can see everything you're doing. So first Very thing true. is attribution's gotten a lot better. Um, Second thing I'll say is it's often overhyped. Um, criminals can do things just like state actors. Uh, their, their criminals are highly financed and, and have a lot of smart people too. So uh, automatically saying, well, we were attacked by a state actor. We couldn't have stopped that. that that's not true. Um, plenty of companies can stop things from state actors. Now, what would the uh, would a state actor like the Russians do with this? So there's, there's two aspects. <clears throat> Certainly intelligence gathering, we know 
um, in past events, both U.S. intelligence successes where we had long-term access to communications, what, what a great gain that was to the U.S. in winning the Cold War and things like that. And certainly here more recently when we found the Russians had access to emails of the Democratic campaign and committee and the Department of State and so on, how they were able to use that to exert undue influence over the elections of the United States of America. So that that is bad enough. That long-term uh, uh, intelligence gathering is bad enough. Um, the, the sec beyond that, the ability to leave things behind. So um, we don't know that they're only doing intelligence. That's an assumption that's based on forensics looks of some of what was going on. Um, but the, the possibility that two things, one is that in the solar winds attack, there were other malicious payloads and beachheads left behind. The second thing is, I really doubt they were only looking at solar winds. Um, we already know there's some investigation into JetBrains, which is right. um, a, a software collaboration tool. Now, I think most of the attention to JetBrains is simply because it's owned by Czechoslovakians and has some roots to Russia, right. which I think is heading in the wrong direction. But all those high leverage products I'm talking about, um, I'm sure they didn't. The Russians didn't put all their eggs in the Solar Winds basket. So um, the CISA guidance told government agencies, if you aren't using Solar Winds, don't worry about it. I, we've been telling, and certainly seeing the the SANS uh, clients that have the more well trained and sort of lean forward security organizations, they're checking everywhere. Well, I mean, I think that brings up the the point about how you establish. Um, trust again in, in your network and your applications, given the fact that they've, in some cases, been in the environment for up to eight months, right? And they've established beachheads. You may know, have a, you're, a, you're gaining understanding of the initial attack vector they exploited, that's great. And you're looking at other ways in which they potentially are jet beans or something else, jet brains, but you have no real idea of, of what other, you know, back doors they've opened up in your environment. So how do you reestablish a secure state? Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of that depends on how mature your security program was before the incident. So, you know, if you think about ransomware, Stan, the, the, the government agencies, states, businesses, many of them have been hit by it. Many of them said, okay, we're just going to back up because they had backups in place. So to re restore operations and regain trust, they could roll back to those backups. Others that had no backups were offline for weeks, if not months, or had to pay ransoms. So there's, you know, there's what I like to call, we often hear called basic security hygiene. I, I, I'm changing what SANS is calling, we're calling more essential security hygiene. It's not just basic, it's not that easy, but it's things you have to do. Just like businesses financially have to do certain things to protect against fraud and financial mismanagement and so on, same in security. So if, if you haven't done that, even figuring out how bad the attack was is nearly impossible. You know, it's kind of right. like if you're, uh, if a hoarder just fills the house up with newspapers, trying to find that one issue with the Washington Post is hopeless. But if you've cleaned up or done filing regularly, you know, you can find things. So um, for, for businesses to find out they were impacted by this, they have to go back and try to establish a known secure state. And, and as you see, um, SolarWinds was broken into in, in September of, of 2020 how, or, or 19, 2019, how long ago that was. Then um, the first impacts were in March of 2020. That's nearly a year. Some companies are going to have to go back. You talked a little bit about this earlier too, that we're seeing the different pieces come out right, as part of the investigation. We now just learned recently that they used another way to kind of go in and basically um, leverage a tool called Sunspot. Right, to monitor for these processes that are going on and be able to look for the process specific in that environment for the build taking place right, of Orion for SolarWinds. So 
let's take it a step into the direction of the software supply chain and kind of expand upon that that topic of trust. Um, what is your perspective as you look at this, right? The, the, the key aspects that many software vendors have dealt with in the past is really leaning heavily on, you know, digital certificates as a means of being able to secure, validate the codes, the DLLs and whatnot within the package overall. And, and that was a key insertion point as part of this attack. So when you look at this, what's the longer term impact, if you will, around the software supply chain? So Rob, I think there's a couple different issues there. One I'll sort of put aside, this whole issue of digital certificates, that's worthy of a podcast on its own because yes, it they've sort of been pointed to as the penicillin for all software problems. And the reality is the way certificate authorities, most of them are run, run um, they're just not useful for that. They're basically useful to say, I think this is coming from who's in the certificate, but I don't know if it's safe or not. Certificates do not say safety. So the, the bigger issue around supply chain security is the actual security of the code itself um, that, that we're buying and installing. So let me use a 10-year-old example now. You know, in 2010, British Telecom, the, the, the national telecom system in, in the UK, did a competition for its 21st generation network, big uh, national upgrade, and Siemens and Cisco and Juniper and all the big providers competed, and Huawei won. British Telecom said Huawei was better and cheaper. Now, British Telecom knew this was a politically sensitive thing to choose a vendor that had roots in China to be the basis of the So they went to the, the British government and said, look, this is the best choice, but we understand that. So what the Brits did in 2010 was set up the, the cybersecurity testing center. So every piece of software from Huawei to be used in the national telecoms environment would be tested. Uh, fun, funding from the vendor, funding from the government to be tested, look for vulnerabilities, pen test teams, automated tools. And here we are 11 years later, and the Brits have been using Huawei in the heart of their infrastructure and haven't had a single incident, Solar winds like incident. Now we look at Solar winds and those software packages, no test. They may have done their own testing, but they weren't required to show anything or prove anything. And now we find out that probably they weren't doing enough at Solar winds to make sure their product was secure. So just as we, you know, we we import food and we have uh, ways of saying there's regulations around how the food should be kept. You shouldn't leave mayonnaise out in the sun for a week or two. It's generally not good. Um, we don't test every single jar of mayonnaise, but we do have inspectors and testing. Bob Bottom line in software security is uh, the programs we've seen that have been successful, both what I've done at SANS here for the past eight years and at Gartner, I was hot on this topic for many years. I, I started up our secure, the security testing coverage there. Um, the companies that have supply chain programs that involve requiring vendors to demonstrate testing of their software either avoid many of these problems like SolarWinds or detect it much more quickly. So again, going back to you need to have the visibility of what components you're using and have some level of assurance of these components, whether you are testing them yourselves or getting evidence that those components could be worthy of trust. Well, let me make two key points about that, Stan. One is it really is testing. It's not self-certifying. It's not having the vendor fill out a questionnaire, right? It's, it's actual testing and visibility into the results, which means both the vendor and the buyer need to have the skills to understand those results and determine them. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing on the visibility point of view, uh, we def many companies definitely do have weaknesses in their inventories, knowing what software is running. But as I pointed out earlier, I think the key thing is to say, we probably do know those high leverage ones, 
right? We, we knew we were running solar winds. That's not an, we know we're running SAP. When you spend a lot of money on something, you know you're running it. And invariably, these high pressure, not invariably, but most of the time, these high pressure point things like to bring the building down, those are things we're spending a lot of money on. That's why we're letting them have such access and because they provide such value. So I would add in there, we, no company, no government agency will ever have all the resources to completely test every single thing. So you have to start at the high leverage ones, the ones that could cause the most damage times uh, their impact on the crown jewels and focus on uh, visibility into those and testing, demonstrated testing of them, not simply compliance or, or somebody signing a contract. Gotcha. Shifting gears, John. Um, you're one of the authors of the recently published SANS book on cloud security. And in your chapter, you have an emphasis on the combination of people, processes, and, and technologies um, that are needed to help a business use cloud services in a secure fashion. And you reference, uh, you know, you use the NIST cybersecurity framework as your um, reference point, and you break down product categories due to uh, into due diligence and advanced or lean forward kind of controls. Can you expand on on what you're doing there as far as those distinctions? Stan, you know, you mentioned I worked for Gartner at 14 years. And, and over those years, I would spend half my week on the phone with businesses and government agencies. And I began to think, you know, they all have the same access to information about what to do in security and what vulnerabilities are out there. Within different industries, everybody spends roughly about the same percent of revenue on security. I mean, within a percent or two, yet they have very widely different outcomes. One transportation company's in the news for a ransomware attack, bringing it down for three weeks and 300 million. Another one avoided it. And I, and I began to realize that it was the teams, the security teams, the quality of the people, their ability to work together, um, their ability to understand the business and protect the business, their ability to create security processes that would work and were repeatable. So that's where, you know, in those papers, you know, we use the old triumvirate of people, process, and technology. All three have to be invested in in order to, to protect things. So when I talk about lean forward, that means you have really smart people who can lean forward and have the skills to say, wait a minute, why did SolarWinds do that? That's not something it, it used to do or needs to do. Um, then you need a process to automate that. So if that smart person's on vacation, somebody else is doing it, or there's a, a way that this, this happens no matter what people leave the company or change it. Then you need technology or products as force multipliers. They don't replace the people. Um, they let us uh, use a, a scarce and fixed resource, people and salary budgets, and get as much of them as possible. And by force multiplying, to tie back to an earlier point, it really means prioritization. It means look at the most important things first. Deploy protective resources in front of the most important things and between the most dangerous things. So the, the lean forward thing, not every company is at the level where they can do lean forward type security. You know, the if you see a lot of the sandwich shops getting attacked, you know, or broken into subway shops or whatever, they're using a little two, three person IT guy supporting 20 different security. They're not going to be there. So we've had this concept of maturity models in security that we copied from the software group. Very immature security programs. They can't do lean forward type stuff. Um, the ones at the very top, high levels of maturity and re, uh, repeatability and, and good processes, use of technology, they can have the people's time and, and do that lean forward kind of stuff. The ones in the middle are the ones, as I mentioned, really, if you can get to this essential security hygiene level, 
know what's out there, patch the most important stuff first, strong authentication for all sysadmins, limit privileges. The, the Australians have showed and Microsoft has showed and data out of uh, Cisco has showed how you'll avoid 90% of these, these incidents. The other 10%, as SolarWinds pointed out, can be really dangerous if you're not watching those key pressure points. I think those are key, you know, aspects as you talked about, you introduced a little earlier in our conversation, the whole point of, you know, focusing on not necessarily kind of the basic hygiene, but the essentials. I think that's, that makes a lot of sense. And now this, you know, delving into uh, this kind of lean forward type of strategy. Um, we recently had uh, Jim Routh on, the CSO at Mass Mutual. He's obviously been with other organizations, large organizations such as Aetna, CVS, American Express, and JPMC. And yeah, I'm sure you're very familiar with Jim. He, he takes a, a perspective and has executed programs on kind of what he refers to as unconventional controls. And the idea behind that, um, you know, is, is really that you don't just look at what the standards are. You don't just look at what the compliance security kind of base controls are defined uh, and, and think that those are going to be the things you implement and you're good to go, right? Because in essence, and we just discussed this, it's laying out the blueprint, right? The attackers see that stuff just like we do. It's published. It's available for them to take advantage of. So when you think about um, kind of that principle, do you see the lean forward controls as being somewhat similar in that approach? Well, you know, back to when I worked at the Secret Service, I remember friends said, you know, we can always tell who the Secret Service guys are. They're all wearing suits and you have little pins and wires in your ears. That's not very good security. I said, no, that's really good security. That, that's just that show of force is going to convince a certain level of attacker to move elsewhere. At GT, we used to say, we don't need to be perfectly secure. We just need to be more secure than Pacific Bell. So the attackers will go after them. So the, the first thing is, there's this myth of security through obscurity or, or don't tell people what you do. You know, one thing I do at SANS is a difference makers program um, where we highlight people who've made a difference. In fact, I've known Jim for many years, uh, Annie Salem, who works for Jim, and he's, uh, she's uh, Jim's third-party risk management manager at Mass Mutual now. We gave her a SANS difference maker award for supply chain security this past year. Um, but uh, there, there's this old myth that, you know, you have to hide what you're doing in security. Don't tell people what to do. I've known Jim for a decade. He's been a real positive force everywhere he's been in helping share what he's doing and being very public because the more people that do the right things in security, uh, it'll convince the bad guys, well, maybe we should try something else for a living instead of going after these companies. Now, getting back to the lean forward part, um, I'll sort of in the maturity model, I'll, I'll go to three levels. At the lowest level is um, compliance only. Yeah, you know, the, the auditors will come through and we're a government agency, so we just have to check the boxes they gave us. PCI, data security. Every single credit card breach, the company breach was compliant, had passed their PCI audit. Um, so there's that level, which is is good, makes the lawyers happy, doesn't protect the customers. At the opposite level, there's the Jim Rouse of the world, who are very forward-looking and know they have to move through these major, these um, uh, maturity levels and work to get a mature program in place. They focus on the high-value things, and they work for pretty big companies with lots of resources. You know, they're not working for sandwich shops, right? So it's not just Jim Ralph at a sandwich shop would still have problems. Jim Ralph at anywhere above that, he's going to do great because he he has the right product. It's the vast people in the middle that back to that essential security hygiene level that um, if you can get there, now all of a sudden you start finding, well, maybe if we send Sally and Joe to some training classes, they can come back and create a process and we can uh, justify to management spending some money on this tool and we can do threat hunting, which is a key lean forward activity. Hey, you know, SolarWinds is doing something funny. 
We better tell solar winds versus wait until we hear about it from the FBI six months later. So lots of value in lean forward. But again, if you don't do all these things in advance, when you lean forward, you fall flat on your face. Great insights, John. Thank you for being with us today. It's great to reconnect. And I, I'm looking forward for more great publications from SANS. You know? So thanks for sharing. Yeah, one little plug. It's for something SANS is doing that we're investing in that it's not revenue for us, but it's really cool. Um, there's a program called Cyber Start, which is uh, we give free online courses to kids, uh, high school and, and community college type kids. If they pass, it's sort of a game they play, like a pen test game. If they pass it, they get access to the free classes. And then they can go to their local community college and add all that boring stuff, social security, social studies, or whatever you have to study that's not the exciting technology stuff, and then get a bachelor's of science in applied um, uh, cybersecurity, and they if they can compete for scholarships in this. So it's rolling out across 30 different states. We're giving a lot of stuff away for free just to get more people into the pipeline here. So it's uh, cyberstartus.org. It's a very cool thing. If you have kids or grandkids or nieces, nephews, or friends, uh, point them to it and get them some free education. Fantastic. Sounds like a great program. Thank you for that. And thanks for your time again today, John. Really right, appreciate good. it. Good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to have us cover a specific topic of interest, feel free to reach out to us and you can find out how in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe. This podcast was brought to you by CyberRes, a micro-focused line of business. Where our mission is to deliver cyber resilience by engaging people, process, and technology to protect, detect, and evolve. 